I believe that every athlete in the world is creative. Just look around. And so if I really want to connect and to a happy place, I listen to some of the music that was on, we call it pirate radio station. Float like my jumper wet, sting like a bumblebee, I swing like a lumberjack, go back when I'm up at bat. Uh, when you are in the locker room in every team in Mexico, pick that song to motivate and increase the energy. No juice. Hey, this is Casey Dunow. And this is Peter Dunow. And welcome to the Athletes Playlist, where we ask your favorite athletes about their favorite music. Our guest today is former Gonzaga star and professional basketball player Matt Santangelo. If you know Gonzaga basketball, you know Matt led Gonzaga to the Elite Eight in 1999 in a Cinderella run. It shocked the nation, paved the way for all the great teams that followed. After Gonzaga, Matt played professionally in Europe, and these days he's serving as the executive director of HoopFest, the world's biggest three-on-three basketball tournament held in Spokane, which is where Casey and I are from, each summer. Uh, Matt, how's it going? It's going well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Before we jump into things, we want to do a quick PSA on behalf of HoopFest. This year, due to the pandemic, HoopFest will be held September 11th and 12th. Registration starts June 1st. As guys who grew up in Spokane and love playing Hoop Fest, albeit with uh, very few wins to show for our efforts, <laughs> we want to help get the word out to everyone to sign up for this awesome event. Now, getting into the show, as a reminder to listeners, we like to highlight a few songs that have been meaningful to our guests in various times in their lives. We're going to kick off today's episode with Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. Machine guns ready to go. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? Out of the doorway, the bullets rip to the sound of the beat. Yeah. Another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust. And another one gone. And another one gone. Another one bites the dust. Hey, hey, gonna get you too. Another one bites the dust. That was Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. So that's one of two songs by Queen, the other being We Are the Champions, that remains extremely popular to play at sporting events around the world. You picked it for your grade school years, though. So for you, was this track tied to sports memories or was it just something you enjoyed listening to around the house? No. So I, so I grew up the youngest of nine kids. So I have five sisters and three brothers. And I'm the, you know, like I mentioned, the youngest and youngest by several years. So um i was just a record that we had like old school record old school record player in our my parents living room uh and so that was just one that i just remember having like and i think it was just the single like it wasn't the full yeah. i don't even know what they're, they're called the full album but it was just the single of another one bites the dust and so i was pretty young but i remember you know doing the record player and playing another one bites thinking i was you know djing a little bit <laughs> um and so not a sports related memory at all just a, a memory about being uh you know young and at home and, and listening to that good song and was music big in your house growing up one thing that i noticed was you gave us a ton of albums more specifically than singles which you know not to be like 
the old man kids get off our lawn but i feel like the art of the full album is like lost these days so yeah was that something big in your house getting you know full record listening all the way through and everything like that it definitely was for me like i i think it was you know i remember obviously this cassette tapes cassette singles when they come out they have the b-sides maybe you get three or four songs but you know for me growing up like you always just try to get the full album you know because if if you wanted the single, you just listen to the radio. Eventually right. you'd hear it, especially if it's popular, you know, top 40 stuff. Um, and so you would just get to the, you know, get an album, but I would listen like, and I still do when a new album drops, like I listen from the moment, you know, from track number one through, through the end of it straight through. And that's how I kind of like, all right, is this, you know, what are we listening to? Is this a good one? Is this a bad one? Right. And I just remember like the first time through, you know, you, you obviously are familiar with maybe a song that's on the radio. Um, but you don't necessarily know, you know, some of the other songs that you hear end up being coming your favorites. You yes. know, you, so your favorite ones are not necessarily the ones you're, that drew you to the record to begin with or the album to begin with. So not huge musical family. Like this didn't come from my parents or anything. Um, it was more kind of a neighborhood influence and just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then I used to play a lot of basketball just by myself in the driveway in our driveway. And so I always take out the boom box. So like anytime oh, I would cool. go out and shoot, which was for me was every day. Um, you know, we plug in the boom box and either let the cassette play or just have it on, you know, on radio. So music was definitely a huge influence, but it's usually kind of background noise to me getting, you know, my jumpers up. Okay. Well, so I have to ask then about one musical direction that you shared with us that surprised me. And I feel like wouldn't necessarily go that well with the, with the shooting hoops. <laughs> Cause you put a lot of songs that definitely do go well with that, but what's up with the, um, you list a lot of Broadway show tunes and Fiddler on the Roof. So how? Where's Fiddler that? Fiddler on yeah. the Roof is a basketball track. You right, know, yeah. you get your shots. <laughs> maybe, it maybe it is. Maybe I'm jumping to conclusions. Yeah, no. So that's my dad. So like that, my mom and dad. Because again, I'm so much younger in my family. You know, my parents come from a. You know, there wasn't like 60s and 70s. I didn't get introduced to like The Doors and Led Zeppelin and, and classic rock until high school with my peers. You know, and I know I mentioned Pearl Jam in college. That was with one of my teammates. Um, so like for my parents, it was more show tunes. It was TV show tunes is Broadway show tunes is kind of their genre, you know, their generational genre. And so that's where that influence came from. And I just remember, you know, if I were a rich man was the, uh, uh, specific song I was referring to, to fiddler on the roof, um, was just one that I could just, you know, hear my dad playing and kind of be bopping around the house, you know, and then it, it always was, it just was great. Cause if, you know, I still have the, it's the same model now, if I were a rich man, what would I be doing, you know, even in today's life? So it just kind of resonated with me and, and, but the show tunes were definitely my mom and dad's influence. And on the sports side of things. So youngest and nine, were your siblings the ones who first got you into sports or your parents and how'd that all come about? Yeah. So I, my family was a pretty athletic family. Um, I actually like to say we're game players, like not necessarily, you know, the biggest, fastest, strongest, but if you throw something at us, we'll catch it. You mm -hmm. know, like we're just decently coordinated as ping pong or a pool, or I remember going on, you know, AAU trips in grade school and high school. Uh, and if we were waiting for the bus or maybe we got to fly somewhere and we're in the airport, my dad used to have the whole team pitching pennies against the wall just because it was like a game. You know, what else we got to do? We're going to just kind of create a game out of this, you know, this downtime or this, uh, you know, this this space of time that we have. Um, but all my older brothers played. Uh, ironically, they used to call me a, uh, they, a specialist. They didn't even call me an athlete because I only played basketball in high school because, you know, all my all my brothers and my sisters who played were multi-sport athletes. 
Um, I was kind of the first generation where we got, for some reason, went more into this specialized, uh, you know, type of athletic experience. I think we're starting to come back out of that, you know, right. thankfully. But, uh, but for my generation, you, you know, you kind of chose early and you specialized. So even though I was, you know, pretty good at basketball, like my brothers never even called me an athlete because I only did <laughs> one sport. Hurtful. Um, and so, but I remember there are pictures of me because like I said, we had, in our driveway was where our basketball hoop was. Um, and there were pictures of me when I was little, little, you know, two, three, four, five years old. And I would used to have to stand up on a chair and you, I could look out the window and it was looking out onto our, our driveway where the basketball court was. So there's pictures of me watching my brothers play when I was too young to be able to go out and play. Um, and then as I got older, just kind of I fell in love with it. Like I just, that was where that's got me through, you know, middle school years, puberty, high school years. Like if anything was going on in, in life, I just went outside and shot around. So I was, I was putting in a lot of work just on my own because that's what I enjoyed doing. And were your older brothers uh, welcoming to you on the court or were they beating up on you a bit? Uh, Casey can attest to the one older sibling beating up on him. So <laughs> that was enough for me. I can't imagine with four. Yeah. Well, I can tell just by looking at you two, you two are closer in age than what my brothers and I are. So like when I was definitely welcomed, you know, like it was because they were older, you know, it wasn't this kind of sibling rivalry and, and that kind of thing. So they, they brought me, I remember my brother, Joe taught me how to shoot, you know, got my, the form right in the elbow and, and the follow through, um, you know, at one point, my brother, Mark, you know, was going to coach us in grade school, you know, he was that much older. So that was, it was a little bit more, um, you know, that type of relationship with my siblings versus like the, the, you know, the sibling rivalry. Yeah. 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 And then my sisters, I mean, my, the closest, uh, in age to me are actually twins, twin girls, uh, and they're seven years older than I am. So that's the oh, wow. closest in age. So that was a little more fun, you know, in high school and middle school age, because, um, that was a little bit more of the, the cat fighting and the family fighting, um, but didn't necessarily manifest itself in sports. And you talk about your AAU experience a little bit. It's funny because that was one of the questions we had for you is, as you very well know um, from your bio, I assume, the youth sports sort of industry is booming as ever. Um, and that comes with some benefits and also some potential pitfalls. So how yeah. how do you see, how have you seen AAU change from the time when you were a kid to where you're at now? Yeah, I just, you know, again, for us, I grew up in Portland. And for us during the basketball season, so during the winter, we would play with our school. You know, we didn't play on our club team during the school year. We'd play for our school. And then for those families or those athletes that wanted more basketball throughout the year, you would kind of, you know, hook up with the summer AAU team. And so it, that's a lot different than Spokane and what we actually do, because we run Spokane AAU out of our organization as well, um, which is one of the largest AAU clubs in the country. Um, at one time, it was the largest AAU club in the country. Um, and so it was just a different environment. So I think two, two thoughts on that. One is I think basketball should be played at school. Mm. Um, I think school should still be that because it's, it's more neighborhood based. It's yeah. not like super all-star teams and elite teams, but then, you know, for those people that want to play in the summer, that's where the super teams are formed. And they, you know, the more like, Hey, we're going to go out and compete against people out of our area. Um, and so I think we miss a little bit of that here in Spokane. Um, and then in, for AAU growing up, that's different than now is like, we had to go win state, then we had to go win regionals and then you got to go compete in nationals. And so the winning mattered, you know? Yeah. And so I think now we we've gotten to a point where winning doesn't matter anymore. It's just about showcasing. So like, if I play on your AAU team this weekend and we go to, you know, assuming no COVID, but we go to Vegas for a tournament and you guys yell at me and I'm going like, 
you know, screw those two. I'm not going to play for them next week. And I go to another team and like, mm. there's no punishment or no, you just, it's a revolving door. And so kids don't learn a lot of those great lessons about grit and resilience and persistence, um, you know, about getting better, yeah. um, in the team setting, which is so valuable. And those are lessons that are so valuable, um, post basketball, post sports and in real life. Um, and I just don't think they get that because I mean, every weekend's a showcase tournament. You know, right. if you don't go, there's no real path and winning doesn't always matter. Um, and so I think, you know, like I said, I think those are some of the changes I see from, from when I, when I grew up to what it is now. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And like the whole life lesson side of sports, you know, once you get older, you aren't always allowed to switch a team, um, at the first sign <laughs> yeah. of adversity. So yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. The other song, um, we decided to feature from your youth years is Pain by Tupac from one of the yeah. best basketball movies ever, uh, Above the Rim, which Tupac acted in also. And you picked a lot of hip hop songs in general. Obviously, there's a big overlap yep. between basketball and hip hop culture. So we were wondering, uh, did basketball help introduce you to hip hop growing up? Yeah, I think, you know, um, it definitely helped. Uh, basketball definitely helped my street credibility. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a neighborhood I grew up and introduced me to all that stuff. Um, you know, where we grew up in North Portland, um, it was a really, really diverse neighborhood. Like, yeah. it, you know, we, and at the time in the, you know, eighties and nineties, and we had a pretty good, um, uh, influx of gangs. Um, and I'll give you an example. I, I did go to Catholic school. My dad ran the largest bingo game in the state of Oregon. Um, and that's how he sent all of us to Catholic schools. Wow. Like that was his volunteerism was that he would, you know, he raised money for the parish or the church and the school. And that's how the, our, the kids, us got to go to school there. And so we would, you know, we'd be in our little uniforms, our little chinos and our little blue or white polo. <laughs> right. But we'd all walk home after school and we had to walk through a blood neighborhood, a red neighborhood. Right. And so literally in eighth grade, we went and, you know, um, petitioned to the school said, we got to get rid of these uniforms because we're getting chased home. You know, we got wow. the wrong color on in their neighborhood. And so um, I only use that as an example because that's where that a lot of that musical influence came from was just right outside our front door. Um, you know, good, bad or indifferent. That was the environment that we were. I'm really, you know, frankly, I'm really proud of where I came from. I'm really proud of North Portland uh, and the lessons learned and the friendships made. Um, but that was a more my influence on the musical side. And then basketball was my, my ability to, you know, uh, you know, form those relationships. And I mean, back to my original thought, like that was where my street cred came from. Right. And of course, once you're in the basketball culture, then it's reinforced with that same music, but the music started, the culture for me started just walking outside my front door. Basketball just became uh, something that really cemented it in my life. That's super interesting. So it sort of becomes a bit of a feedback loop. I was going to ask, like, so as, did basketball, you know, as well as a sanctuary, did it also become a vehicle for you to maybe express some of the more intense energy that's represented in that music that a lot of people feel as kids, but maybe, you know, maybe it's more in that neighborhood, oh. maybe it's not. But, you, you know, that's yeah. your space where you can really be aggressive. Did you feel that growing up? Absolutely. And, you know, and I really took a lot of the lessons in the music I was listening to to heart. You know, I think, you know, pain and above the rim is, is an example of that. Um, certainly, um, you know, I, I know later on with all eyes on me and Tupac as well, like that was a song that in college, like I used to like that was I'd play that before the game. And that was my mentality. Like I'm going out because we were entertainers. Right. I mean, yeah. athletes are modern day gladiators. Like you go into the ring and you have to perform. 
And in the case of basketball, like it is to me the most intimate sport because you're running around in your underwear. Like you, you're, <laughs> you're exposed, right? You got, I mean, Nowhere we used to have baggy shorts on. Yeah. Now the shorts have gotten a lot shorter. Um, and so at least we covered up down to our knees and probably even beyond our knees when I was playing. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I always, I like that because if you can't dribble left-handed, you better believe those, there's going to be a mom in the crowd yelling, force that little kid, you know, to his yeah. left. He can't dribble left-handed. So no matter what you get exposed. Right. And so a lot of that, the toughness, the grit, the, you know, the environments that rap music in, in that generation, they, where they were coming from, uh, you know, that was for a lot of people, that was their meal ticket out of a really tough situation and a tough environment. A lot of ways for us, basketball was a meal ticket out of a really tough environment and tough situation. Now I'd never, I don't want to like, um, uh, paint the wrong picture. Like we had, I have two wonderful parents, right. you know, two loving, we never, you know, we didn't have a lot of stuff, but we never went without either, you know, like I'm not trying to, sure. to, but it was the neighborhood I grew up in. Like that life was happening like that for a lot of people. Every time I walked out my front door and it was just there to be seen and, and, um, uh, thought about and considered. And so that music does fuel you. And like I talked about earlier, like just going outside my driveway, like those teenage years are hard, man. You got all those hormones bouncing around, you know, maybe the girl didn't look at you the right way in class or, you know, that you didn't get the, you don't have the right shoes or, you know, all those things that, um, you know, seem like big deals at the time, you know, basketball was my outlet. So all that stress, all that emotional firepower, the emotional roller coaster, I went outside and shot around and created my own little world tied to basketball where I'm, you know, count 10, like everyone else, five, four, three, right. you know, mm -hmm. or like, gosh, the crowd's watching. And, you know, I, I make this move. And it's like, that was my kind of my imaginary friends, my imaginary world, but it was all tied to basketball because I love doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And you don't think about North, North Portland, you know, it's changed so much. So it's awesome to get that insight. Yeah. Um, my oh. parents are still there. Like they've been wow. in the same home for how old is my brother? 59 years. My mom's been on the news twice in those 59 years, once after a man was stabbed 17 times in self-defense. My dad found him in our raspberry bushes. Oh, and once after a drive-by shooting left two kids killed, two kids wounded, um, basically on our front porch. And so my mom was on the news twice and she, you know, both times. And it was this was a, a pretty big, maybe 10 years span of time between these two incidents. And both times they asked, like, what's it like living in such a dangerous neighborhood? And my poor sweet mother, you know, mother of nine kids says, oh, we got problems just like everyone else. <laughs> and it wasn't until I moved to Spokane. I say this totally tongue in cheek, but I moved to Spokane on the South Hill of Spokane. I'm going like, we ain't got the same problem. <laughs> okay, this, this, this ain't the same. And so, uh, but that's where I grew up, you know? So like I said, I'm, I'm very proud of that. Um, and it has changed a lot. North Portland has changed a lot, but my parents have been there for a long, long time. That's cool. Um, and so they've seen a lot. And they saw before that when it was that kind of neighborhood to when it was that kind of neighborhood. Now, you know, everything that's happened now. I had to feed my fucking family. What else could I do? Go be a thug. I'm slanging with the homies. Fuck hanging with the phonies in the club. Got my mind, no danger. Never been a stranger to homicide. My city's full of gangbangers and drive-bys. Why do we die at an early age? He was so young.
that rough life. Running crazy wild as a kid and growing tough with a knife. But living tripe from the that was Pain by Tupac. Now we're going to transition to your college years, and the first track we'll play is Black by Pearl Jam. Now the year I tasted and was Black by Pearl Jam. Uh, so that's a beautiful, emotionally wrought song. Uh, we were looking up in advance of the episode and one of the YouTube comments said, uh, we should thank the woman who broke this man's heart because it gave us one of the <laughs> best songs ever written, uh, which I'd have to agree with. Uh, so not putting words in your mouth, but why did, uh, why did you yeah. pick it? Yeah, so this one was, so when I got to school uh, at Gonzaga, when I got to college, um, I remember uh, being outside our dorm, the dorm is called Desmet, which is one of the all boys dorms that a lot of the freshmen and sophomores stayed in. And it's in the middle of campus. And it was like the first orientation. So it was like all the, you know, all the students that were in Desmet. And I remember this sophomore, um, not to be named, but his sophomore came up and invited <laughs> us to this party that night, you know, just, you know, doing his thing, kind of connecting people. And we were, you know, we were, I say we, cause I'll give you the second person to this story here shortly. But he asked us, and then there was going to be a, you know, a keg or it was going to be a alcohol at the party. And so I didn't drink. I didn't drink in high school. I didn't drink in college. Like I was, I was there to do other things. Like yeah. that wasn't a part of my thing. And so I look over and one of my teammates who I had just met, who was also a freshman, and his, his name is Mike Nielsen. He also doesn't drink and still doesn't. So he's actually, at some point <laughs> I broke down, but yeah. he, he's still going strong, you know, 44 years later. Um, and so we both kind of looked at each other, just, you know, deer in the headlights, totally scared Our you know, little freshman on campus. <laughs> Here's this upperclassman asking us to this party. And we're like, you know, I don't, I'm not going to that party. And so, and, and we kind of like immediately were like, okay, like soul yeah. brothers, right? Like we're, we're together, like you, me and you are going to be. And so ironically we became best friends, like, and literally to this day are still, you know, he's still one of my best friends. He lives here in Spokane. He's actually a board member at Hoop Fest, who's one of my bosses, um, which is really funny, but, um, <laughs> but we're still, you know, still great friends. And so the Pearl Jam Black story, he played guitar. Oh, cool. So, and he sounds just like Eddie Vedder. So he could never read music. So he would just listen to the song over and over again, and he could figure out the chords just you know phonetically just by acoustically just by listening to it and so he would give out these little concerts so he's the one that introduced me to pearl jam in general he's from seattle area as well so it fit um but then he also loved pearl jam loved what eddie vetter stood for what the whole band stood for and then loved the music and so that was my introduction um to pearl jam but i got to do it through the voice and you know interpretation of mike nielsen who was you know like i said one of my best friends 
Yeah, that's a talented dude right there, the basketball oh my God. and the self-taught musician. He got two quick stories. You can edit all this stuff out later, but the first one is uh, one of our teammates, Kevin Williams, asked him to play Raspberry Beret by Prince. And he was like, nah, I, I don't know that song. You remember, he, he can't read music. Right. I think he can now, but he couldn't then. And then all of a sudden he kind of pauses and he looks up into the sky and you can almost see him like drawing the music back down to him. Oh my God. And then straight up just played Raspberry Beret. Oh, like just played it and sang. And we're like, what in the, like who does that type of stuff? And then this is a, another fun story. So the night um, my, I uh, first saw my, who's my wife now, uh, freshman year in biology class. And so it was one of our largest classrooms, auditorium uh, on campus. And so I set up a study date so I can meet her. And nice. so I use mutual friends and that, whole, that all that stuff. And so, but Mike came with us, Nielsen came with us. And of course we study for a little bit and it's a group setting. Um, but Mike brings his guitar. And so at the end of the night, I'm um, like, Mike starts and Mike's got blue eyes. He plays the guitar. He's six, five, you know, he's, and so then he started, I'm like, and I really like this girl. Right. And so I, and I was like, so we get to know her like nice night, you know, friendly, very, very easy to be around. And Mike plays music at the end of it. I'm going like, you SOB, like how, like I, he already knew that I liked this girl. Like how he's just going to ruin it for me. You know, like I can't compete with that. No one can compete with that. Um, but I got the girl. So she's just over in the other room at the moment. So nice. There you go. Happy ending. And you're still friends. I like it. Yep. So then on the basketball side of things, you know, we touched on it and like, like most listeners probably know, um, you know, the epic, uh, elite eight run, but, you know, coming into your freshman year, like, I think you redshirted your freshman year. So what were your goals off the bat? Um, and how did you handle, you know, not even playing in games your freshman year? Yeah, well, it was, it was good. I mean, I think that was always part of the plan for me. Uh, you know, physically I wasn't ready. Like I'm, I'm a September baby, so I'm already a year younger than everyone. Mm. Um, so when I showed up on campus in August of, well, I guess it would have been August of 95. Um, you know, I was 17 years old when I first started school. Cause you, you know, my birthday wasn't until September. And then we had a senior guard ahead of me, Kyle Dixon. And so like the, the idea was always to take a year, mature, work out, put on some weight. I mean, I was also as tall as I am now and 148 pounds. So I was, I was mm. really, really thin. Um, and so that was always the plan was just kind of red shirt and develop. And that was kind of a Gonzaga thing. Like you kind of knew they were already in this phase of, of how do we develop, you know, you're going to be better at 22 than you are at 17. And that was kind of just the philosophy of the, the program at that time. So we actually had five red shirts that year. Mike Nielsen was one of them. Uh, Ryan Floyd, who was another one that, that we all went through school the whole time. And then we had two other guys, Carl Kreider and Brad McKnight. And so we ended up being the, you know, the, the practice squad. We were the, you know, practice five. We'd run all the opposing teams because we had five guys. We were all positionally made sense. So we had our own little crew. Um, so we got lots of, you know, lots of work. And then the senior guard, but you know, really what attracted me to Gonzaga, when I was coming out of high school, my final five schools were Stanford, Oregon, Rice, and Northwestern in Gonzaga. And so, um, but I remember Coach Fitzgerald, who does not get mentioned enough in the success of, yeah. of what GU is. Yeah. Uh, and Coach Few recruited me out of high school. Coach Few recruited the guards and, and Fitzgerald was the head coach. But I remember them both coming to the same home in North Portland, my parents' home in our living room. And Coach Fitz gave me this line, and this is ultimately what, what did it for me. He said, he said, listen, no one's bigger than the program. No one. 
But if I had a basketball, I would hand it to you and say, we're going to go where you're going to take us. And so that line, you know, as an adult now, I realize he probably said that in every living room he was ever in. But at the time, like I, I, I bought that, like it still gives me goosebumps, man. I, I bought it hook, line and sinker because no one's bigger than, you know, no one's bigger than your neighborhood, than your family. You know, I mean, come from a big family. No one's bigger than the team. No one's bigger than the program. But he was going to give me influence as to where that team was going to go. You know, and so that, I thought that was a great, you know, just a great testament to the opportunity at GU. They were coming off their first West Coast Conference championship in 1994. Their first NCAA tournament appearance in 1995. So they were winning, you know, they were right. kind of on this upward trajectory uh, and I was going to get to play a lot, which was my goal. Um, and so then it was just about preparing my body and my mind to do the best I could. And that made the red shirt decision a lot easier because I needed to get my body better and stronger uh, before I really, you know, tackled division one basketball. I have to push back against one thing you said a little bit, which is as someone who got offers from Pac-10 and Big Ten schools, I feel like they might not have said that to every single person. I don't know. I mean, were you not like their top recruit? Uh, at the time, we at the time, I think so. Uh, I was just right up there with Jalen Suggs, I think. No, I'm joking. I'm totally joking. <laughs> um, at the time, yeah, they had said that I was the, the biggest recruit because of some of this other interest from different schools and right. programs. Um, and so I don't know. I just always assume like they're trying to get these kids to come play. And so, but that, that line that coach Fitz share, share with me, like I said, still resonates with me. I, it still has kind of shaped a lot of my, you know, leadership philosophy yes. and things like that as well, because people ultimately want to be accountable for where they're going. Right. Um, in my case, I wanted the responsibility of kind of having an influence on the direction of the battleship, yep. you know, and the direction mm-hmm. of the team and the direction of the program. Um, and so all those things really, really resonated with me. So that kind of merges into sometimes we like to do little song sports, try to combo questions. Sometimes there reaches. We'll just see if this one resonates <laughs> with you. Um, because you gave us two uh, two outcast songs, excuse me, or two outcast albums to yep. pick a song from for this time, which is a very difficult thing to do if you know how dope outcast is just to pick one song. But I chose the AT Aliens song from the AT Aliens album because to me it felt like sort of one of their earlier big hits and a sort of crucial introduction to where they were as outsiders changing up the status quo of hip-hop and introducing themselves to the game so playing for a bit of an outsider program this might be the reach part did you relate at all to outcast sort of creative do it your own way mentality yeah i mean i think i mean definitely a reach because i'd never considered it before but i wouldn't (laughs) argue it yeah, I don't think I'd argue it, you know, because I, I do feel like that us against the world, which is also Tupac, right? Um, you know, and a, that outcast kind of just the name outcast. Right. Um, you know, we felt that way. And we we actually and I know this to be true. And this is where I think I'm, just because I've never thought about it doesn't make it accurate um, is that we played with a big chip on our shoulder. You know, we had guys, Casey Calvary, tremendous zag, you know, and, and good friend of mine now, too. Um, you know, he was upset. He didn't get more Pac-10 schools after him. You know, uh, he, he they, we were upset that we didn't have more national schools or national attention. We were upset that you couldn't pronounce the name of the school. Uh, you know, we, all that all that stuff upset us. So like we so I do think there's some some tie to that identity, even though we never never had articulated it before. Of like we were on the outside looking in. We were it was us against the world. We were outcasts. Um, and we use that to our advantage. We just put that into good energy to, you know, work a little harder and, and fight a little more. And on that same note, you know, 
at the time I was in fifth grade. Um, but at the time, and I still remember it cause the whole city blew up, but, um, you know, the kind of narrative was this teams beating all these teams that are more talented than them. But then, you know, you look at it in hindsight and there were at least three NBA potential guys yourself, Casey Calvary, and then Richie Fromm who did play yep. in the NBA. So, I mean, do you think you were beating teams in those tournaments that were more talented than your team or you, the media just hadn't realized how much talent yeah. you had? I, I think, I think it was, um, you know, I think it was the easy narrative without knowing anything. Right. Um, you know, I think it was, uh, you also had a bunch of white dudes. So like heaven forbid we were athletic too, you know, like that wasn't a, you know, very popular. You just assume we're a Princeton style offense and we just back Georgia to death and knock down jumpers. I mean, we shot a lot of jumpers, but Casey Calvary was straight dunk on you if you gave him a chance. Richie Fromm was a beast of an athlete at six five and could jump out of the gym. Um, shoot, I'm still top five all time vertical at the combine. So yeah. we saw like, that we when we were researching. Dudes. We were like, what? Yeah, I mean, we we had some. But my point in saying that is like we had dudes. You know, we had yeah. some dudes. So um, so I think for for us, it wasn't so much. Uh, we were unique because under Fitzgerald. We had a really, um, we ran the flex offense, which is super old school, but we ran the flex offense and very disciplined, ton of screens, very few um, live ball off the dribble stuff. And so when coach Munson took over, which would have been the elite eight, uh, actually my sophomore year, 97, 98 and 98, 99, um, they added motion. So when we would go up against the teams that we were um, maybe not as athletic with, or maybe, you know, athletically a little bit equal, we would run flex and they would get lost in screens because it's a, it's a much more disciplined approach to the offensive end of the floor. So we, if you were undisciplined, we would just run you through screens and you would just you, you'd throw your hands up in the air. We had so many, so much different action going, but if we were you know equally athletic or more athletic, maybe you're a little bit more disciplined defensively, we would just motion you and then you couldn't keep up because we were, we were, we did have the versatility, the physical versatility to go do some things on our own. So that, that made for an interesting mix at the time of, uh, you know, kind of what do you do? And then we had five guys that could shoot. So that's kind of been a, you know, Gonzaga thing. We, I mean, it was before the stretch four, but we had Axel Dench who could step to three, Jeremy Eaton that could stretch, you know, step to 18 um and they because of how we played um they had opportunities to shoot and had the freedom to shoot and that's what made us a really tough guard because we were at five guys on the floor that could effectively be productive um in the systems that we ran and how early in this process or did you at all get a hunch of how good you guys were i remember i listened to a all the smoke episode with Richard Hamilton. And even though that Pistons team came out of nowhere, he was like first practice. We knew we had something going on. Did you guys feel that way? Like, Oh, this is a little bit different this year or anything like that. Well, the best Gonzaga team I was on, I think was 97, 98 coach Munson's first year. Oh, interesting. So, um, you know, what I think what really changed between Fitzgerald to Munson and then few, you know, the, the younger generation is they just scheduled different. Like Munson and Munson coach few and coach Greer at the time just said, why can't we go play against these? You know, why can't we go schedule differently? And, you know, and so they probably had the vision that maybe we had some tools to go compete, but 97, 98, we start the season at the top of the world classic in Fairbanks, Alaska. And told, we played Tulsa in the first round. They're coming off a of sweet 16. We play Mississippi state coming off a of final four, I believe 
And then we played Clemson, the number five team in the country, and we beat them all. And like, so that, when you talk about kind of that belief and that growth pattern, like those are really, really critical um, in knowing like what we were made of. You know, I think the following week we go to Michigan State um, in East Lansing and we lose at the buzzer, you know? And so we, we start to just kind of, you know, up the game. And then we were, you know, we were capable about, about going out and having success. So by the time we get to the tournament in 99, like we've already felt like we had a significant amount of scar tissue and battle tested and confidence and, um, you know, uh, experience that were going to set us up for success when we finally got back on that big stage. That's rad. Sort of like dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Yeah, exactly. About the second album at the dungeon shooting pool like ES to the PN because we just to the BN zone. Honey, I'm home, but I'm not married. Carried a lot of problems around being frustrated. And now I'm sitting at the end of the month. I just made it like you made the B team. And like your daddy's wife, you made it off. You heard the AT alien, so back the hell up off. Softly as if I played piano in the dark. Found a way to channel my anger, not to involve. The world's a stage and everybody got to play their part. God works in mysterious so when he starts the job of speaking through us, we'd be so sincere with this here. No drugs or alcohol, so I can get the signal clear as day. Put my block away, I got a stronger weapon that never runs out of ammunition, so I'm ready for war, okay? I hold your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care. And if they like fish and grits and all that pimp shit, everybody let me hear you say, oh yeah, girl. That was AT Aliens by Outkast. We're going to transition to the start of your professional career with Renegade by Jay-Z featuring Eminem. Christ, the king of these Latter-day Saints here to shatter the picture in which of that is they paint me as a monger of hate Satan, a scatterbrained atheist, but that ain't the case. See, it's a matter of taste. We as the people decide if shade is as bad as they say he is, or is he the latter, a gateway to escape, media scapegoat, they can be mad at today. See, it's as easy as cake, simple as whistling Dixie, while I'm waving the pistol at 60 Christians against me. Go to war with the Mormons, take a bath with the Catholics in holy water, no wonder they try to hold me under. I'm a motherfucking spiteful, delightful, eyeful, the new ice cube. Motherfuckers hate to like you. What did I do? Huh? I'm just a kid from the gutter making his butter off these blood suckers. Cause I'm a motherfucking renegade. That was Renegade by Jay-Z featuring Eminem. Now we're getting to the part of your life where you're making a career out of basketball, playing overseas. You picked two full Jay-Z albums for this time period, the Blueprint and the Black Album. Jay-Z, famously self-made man. I picked Renegade just because it has a little extra edge to it. And so I just want to talk about how did Jay-Z resonate with you and then maybe also the type of edge that you had to have as a self-made player going to Europe where maybe nobody cares about your success. You know, once you're over there, you really kind of have to do it yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the Jay-Z one is great because he, he just brought a whole different type of storytelling. You know, the Mm. thing that his, his just the subject matter was so different. And so he was the, one of the ones to me that first kind of opened your eyes up to like the luxury life. You know, sure. like he could, he, he talked about brands. He talked about his influence. He talked about, um, yeah, he talked about where he came from he, and he was, a you know, obviously a great lyricist. So that part is you take, you know, you don't want to take for granted with, with Jay, but 
Um, but he also kind of opened your eyes up to Range Rovers and, you know, chartered flights and just kind of this big time life, you know? And so that was, to me, was really, really interesting um, uh, for him, you know, in addition right. to, like I said, his, just his lyricism and his music itself. Um, and so like, and I love that you chose Renegade uh, because I, Eminem, like that was the one yeah. time where you like, you listen to Jay-Z and then you listen to Eminem's version, like Eminem got him. Like yeah. if we're going one on, if we're going one on one, like Eminem just got it when when seven zero, you know, by ones. Like he just crushed this dude. I'm going like, dang, you know, that's nice. Um, and so, and and Eminem, I think more kind of, uh, you know, captures that emotion. You know, captures that anger. Where Jay is like just so smooth yeah. and like kind of just it's great. You know, it seems like he and even now as an adult, like seems like he just has great perspective. Like you just want to, you know, get him on this podcast and just let him chop it up and kind of right. tell about his experience, stuff like that, I think would be just really, really wonderful. Um, but M just had that, just that raw emotion that we all know, you know, if you were around at that, that time listening to music, you know, the, the raw emotion M brought, which is kind of, again, back to kind of how I played basketball. Right. It, was, it was, it was more emotional, emotionally driven. It was angry. It was surly. Um, it was a chip on our shoulder, you know, on my shoulder. Um, however, we're also, you know, let's not be too hard on ourselves. I was in Greece and Italy and Spain and <laughs> Poland. So like, these are some pretty nice places. Um, and I got to get, you know, get paid to play basketball. So there's also a lot of um, growth and maturity during those years as well. Uh, you know, up to the point where I, you know, um, decided to retire. Nice, nice. And then so you're very determined, um, obviously surly, ambitious as a as a player, not a person, not a not as a complete personality. But um, so with all that uh, com- going into the the draft for the NBA, a very accomplished yeah. career, honorable mention, All American. Um, at the time, were you thinking you had a chance to be drafted, and what was preparing for that process like? Yeah. So at that time you had, um, a couple different camps. You had Portsmouth and Virginia. You had Phoenix was the big senior kind of, um, showcase camp. Um, you went to Chicago, uh, the combine in Chicago. Um, I did all those things. Um, you know, I, I had played for team USA the year before between my junior and senior year. Um, so I started to have more kind of personal relationships and exposure to, to guys that were, you know, that ultimately did get drafted. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I had, uh, you know, obviously I wanted to get drafted. I felt like I had put together a decent resume, um, for that ability. I actually threw a party at our church, um, our parish hall, um, which is the cafeteria. I went to grade school. Um, and so we have probably about 300 people, um, family and extended family and friends from the neighborhood. And we threw this big party just to not get drafted. So when you start to talk about character build, building yeah. and resilience yeah. and, and, and confidence and, and things like that. Like, I remember getting up at the end of this thing and everyone's kind of like shocked. Like, what am, what's he going to say? You know, right. he, he literally just threw this party for 300 people and he didn't get drafted. But I, you know, just like I'm doing now, I just kind of hop on the mic and tell everyone, thank you. And that it's just all part of the journey, you know? Right. And like, if it's, if it's, if it's your darkest days, it just means the ride's not over yet. It's just, that's all it means. And so you, we got to kind of still be resilient. You got to be gritty. Um, and it created an opportunity for me to go to Europe. Um, and there's just, it was just kind of a, yeah, it was disappointing. Um, but I just never knew, I don't guess I never knew if I felt like I deserved to be there anyway. And maybe that's, that's probably why I didn't actually get there, uh, is that I probably somewhere in the back of my head didn't necessarily believe I should be there anyway. Um, and so this was just about celebrating with my family and friends and, and celebrating what basketball is for our life. 
Um, and then whatever that next adventure would be, which became, you know, seven years in Europe and, and a whole other host of stories and songs and friendships and relationships that, right. you know, you still are all over the world. Yeah. There's a ton of amazing life lessons in, in what you just said. And it sounds like you were sort of, on the one hand, maybe a bummer that you didn't have that belief that you could play in the NBA. But on the other hand, maybe that was sort of your intuition telling you that you had some other pretty amazing journeys that you were open for sort of spiritually and otherwise. So I want to transition into that time. We listened to the Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, which shout out to Mitrovich because that was an awesome show. And it sounds like your career got off to a little bit of a tumultuous start playing in Greece and having projectiles thrown at you by fans. And the reason <laughs> I bring that up specifically is that as a fun fact, you're the second guest on this show, the first being former Sounders goalie Michael Schperning, to have objects thrown at you while playing in Greece. So you guys are a specific athletes <laughs> playlist club. Wow. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, he had a I cell had phone. To, yeah. Cell phone and a dart. So you'll have to see if you can. Uh, oh, the, I couldn't beat the dart. <laughs> we had cell phones. We had cell phones, batteries, water bottles. I mean, in Greece, we literally sat in dugouts, like what he would have <laughs> sat in at the soccer pitch. Right. right. We had the same benches, and that was what kept people from, you know, potentially throwing darts at us. I guess I didn't. <laughs> I never had a dart thrown at me though. The uh, <laughs> my favorite part of that story is he showed the referee the dart and then he got a yellow card for time wasting i thought that was harsh but um <laughs> it just goes to show you all the more adventure um to zoom out a little bit i want to know how someone goes from a bench warmer which you talked about being in greece to a rookie of the year in the a in acb liga which i know that's a multi-year journey for you but just mentality wise how does someone make that happen well, I think for me at that time, it was about because um, actually that first year I spent half the year in Greece and then I moved to this team in Italy um, and the team in Italy was Cantu. Um, it was one of my favorite, you know, favorite playing stops. Uh, but at the time they were one in 11 mid midway through the year. Um, and you, as you know, in European, it's, it's like football, it's like soccer that when you're when you finish last or second to last, you get relegated the following year to second division. And then the champion from second division comes up to first division. So it's always this kind of revolving door of, of, you know, teams changing. And so I remember when I was in Greece and I was talking to this team in Cantu around Christmas time about potentially coming, you know, leaving mid year and coming to this team um, that the coach was like, we need a point guard. Like you're going to be playing 35 minutes a game. So to answer your question for me at that time, it was just, I need to be on the floor. Like, where do I like, just like when I came to GU, like, and I, this is, I remember this, I defined this philosophy for myself at this time in my life. I was like, if I'm good enough, I'm good enough. If I'm not, I'm not, but damn, not trying. Like that's ridiculous. Right. So like, cause I remember when I was going, going to move to Italy, my agent was like, he's, he's like, Matt, don't go to this team. They're one and 11. They're going to finish in last place. They're going to get relegated. So now you are a bench warmer in Greece, didn't play much. And now, and then your second half of your first season, you got relegated to second division. Like that's a horrible first year as a pro. Um, and I remember telling him, I was like, nope. I mean, I told him, I told him what I just said. I'm like, no, I'm going to go in and play 35 minutes a night. Like if I'm good enough, we're going to, we're going to find out right now. And so, um, and I had talked to one of the other Americans on the team who was Bootsy Thornton. Bootsy had played at St. John's, who we actually bumped, knocked out of the NCAA tournament to go to the Sweet 16 my senior year. 
And so I talked to Bootsy and I go, Bootsy, you know, how are things going and what's going on there? He's like, Matt, he's like, we're competitive. Like coach is good. He's solid. We're competitive. We're getting paid on time. Those are the types of questions right. you need to ask in Europe. Um, he's like, we just don't manage the end of game stuff very well. Like we need a point guard to come in and help manage. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get to play a lot. This team's relatively competitive. Um, like let's, let's do it. And so ironically, this is one of my uh, more enjoyable stories, but the, I show up to Cantu like on a Monday in December and we're going to play that next Saturday. And we're playing in Milan and Milan is like 30 miles away from Cantu, this little city. And so it's like a derby, you know, it's like the civil wars. I mean, it's, sure, it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. so we drive the 30 miles to this game in Milan and we have about, you know, 300, 400 of our fans come. And so there's a, a you know, visiting fan section and it's not roped off. It's SWAT team. Wow. So like SWAT team, full shields, everything are the ones that keep our 400 or 500 fans in their little section. And so I play that game. I start, I play, you know, the 35 minutes or whatever. Um, we are getting crushed at halftime. Like <laughs> we're down like 22 at half. And so we come in, uh, come back out at second half and all our fans are gone. It's like tumbleweeds going through the visitor section. Like they're, they left. We end up getting it respectful. I think we lose by like 13 or 14 or something like that. And I played pretty good. So this is my, after sitting, not playing a lot in Greece, I have like 22 in my first game in Italy, but right. we get beat. So afterwards, it's the whole European thing. First coach comes and yells at you. Then the general manager comes and yells at you. Then the <laughs> owner comes and yells at you. Then, the you know, like everyone just comes and just browbeating you and yelling at you. So we get on the bus and we drive back to our city, which is, like I said, about 30 minutes away. And all our fans are waiting for us in the parking lot, throwing rocks at the bus, oh not gosh. darts, but throwing <laughs> rocks at the bus. And so sure enough, they form two single file lines right off the, the door of the bus and we all walk out the, and they are just these little Italians are just berating <laughs> us as players. So they leave me alone. Cause I'm the new guy and I played well. Um, they kind of leave Bootsy and Travis Williams, the other American alone because you know, we're, we're foreigners. So, but they just crushed the Europeans. They like the local <laughs> players, the Italian players. And I was like, I remember looking at Bootsy, I go Bootsy. Like literally, I just talked to you last week, like literally <laughs> last week. And you said everything was good. Like what in the world? Well, what happened in that particular year was that we became, we had the best record in the league the second half of the year. And we ended up saving ourselves. You know, we, we finished 15th or 16th in the league, but we didn't get moved down to second division. And so it ended up being this huge success story. And I got, I love some of my stories from that year at Cantu. Um, but that was kind of the, the start, yeah. you know, it, for me, it was just, I just needed to be on the floor. Um, I just wanted to, you know, I didn't want to be a professional player. Maybe that's one thing I tell myself around not being in the NBA. Like what difference does it make if I had a 10 day in the NBA and I'm on this podcast with you now saying I had a 10 day in the NBA, right. Mm -hmm. right. like I, I played 35 minutes a night as a professional basketball player playing the sport that I feel like I was meant to play and love. Um, and I got to develop and grow. Like I got to play the game. And so I think that that, to me, it's always, you know, again, it may be a little bit of a pacifying statement um, or defensive statement even, even, but it still gives me some perspective. It's like, man, I, I played ball, you know, I, I got to play the game and that was really uh, um, something I take pride in. Yeah, absolutely. And then like you're saying that year kicked off a, a long, successful, successful career. You won a championship in Italy in 2006. Yep. Um, yep, yep. so then when did you win and how did you decide to call it quits? 
Yeah. So I, uh, it, it kind of, uh, an interesting thing, especially as it pertain comes back to music and kind of what we talked about with all the, that raw emotion and, and sometimes for me, you know, anger, um, I had, I had an interesting relationship with basketball because of its roller coaster nature. And what I mean by that is like, for some reason I had it stuck in my head. Like if I played well, I was a good person. Right. And if I played poorly, I was a bad person. Like somehow I'm not sure where that wiring happened. Um, or how that got enforced or reinforced, but that's kind of the roller coaster I was on. It wasn't like, you know, I had a bad night. I was like, I'm doing fundamentally, I'm doing something wrong as a human as to why I'm having a bad night. And it took a long time to figure that out. So the moment it happened, I can remember, and I remember vividly, um, we're married. Uh, our oldest son is born. He was born in Spain. And, uh, you know, I realized that, you know, my wife, you know, God bless her, never really cared. I mean, she loved that I played basketball and loved that it's an important part of my life, but she, she couldn't care less. Like she just loved me. And so it was the first time in my life that that light bulb went off. I was like, dang, like she doesn't care if I score 20 or score zero, if we win, if we lose, like, you know, she loves me. And then with our son who was less than one years old, like it, it dawns on you really quickly. Like, he don't care. Mm -hmm. You know, he still needs his diaper change. Yeah. Like that's like, he just wants to be fed and get his diaper changed and know that he's in a safe and secure home. So it was like a light switch for me. Like I just realized the light switch and all that. I was like, why am I so angry all the time? Like, why am I so wound so tightly about, you know, working out and being in shape and, and grinding and finding ways to get better. And just, and so it just was for me, it was just, uh, was kind of a, a symptom of just being burnt out. You know, it was 30 years of living that intensely around the sport of basketball. And it was like, a, like I said, it was a total light bulb moment. And I realized I did not want to do this anymore. And so, you know, and I, I look back now, at, you know, after, you know, 13 years of additional life and uh, experience, and I kind of go, you know, I wouldn't go back and change it. My heart wasn't in it. So I always say like, gosh, I should have played a couple more years or saved a little bit more money or, you know, whatever the, those are, but my heart wasn't in it. And I, I'd lead with my heart. Um, and so it just was kind of like, it was time to go. So I was healthy. You know, I walked away of my own accord, um, for that. I'm grateful too. Cause there's so many athletes that walk away after an injury. And so they have to kind of battle with that scar tissue, not just the injury scar tissue, but yeah. the mental scar tissue from that. Like I walked away on my own terms and I got no one to blame or no one to, you know, um, celebrate with them myself. Like it was my decision and that's what I did. All right, so we're going to finish this section with The Sixth Sense by Common from the album Like Water for Chocolate. Uh, it's a legendary hip, legendary album in the hip-hop world, and Common, of course, is a master lyricist. Uh, why did you? Why does this album resonate with you? For everything you just said. <laughs> yeah. It was just great. Like, I still love The Light. Like, that's maybe my favorite love song is uh, The Light from that album yeah. by Common. When that album came out in The Light, The Light made every mixtape I ever made for anyone. Like, that that one is 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 one of my favorites. So um, it's just, you know, when I was talk, thinking about when you asked me the question around this playlist and why I struggled so much is that I would think try to think about one song yeah. and then it would kind of grow into these albums. And so, but The Light is one that is hands down, like, that will be on every you know, every mixtape I ever make, um, or playlist now that I ever make. Uh, uh, and so that's where it came from. That was, that was one of the few songs I could point to like, that's a specific song that will always kind of be with me. One that I love. Well, yeah. that's great to hear. We're, we'll call an audible right now. We can edit after this show. The light, light is going <laughs> in. Put the, the light, light in. Is going in. 
the sky right. During these cold side nights, moon, you my light. If heaven had a height, you would be that tall. Ghetto the coffee shop, I see that all. Let's stick to understanding and we won't fall. For better or worse times, I hope to me you call. So I pray every day more than anything. Friends will stay as we begin to lay this foundation for a family. Love ain't simple. Why can't it be anything worth having? You work at annually. Granted, we've known each other for some time. It don't take a whole day to recognize sunshine. All right, we're going to segue to your most recent years in the pros with Downtown by Macklemore. Here it is. girl, we can still ride together. You don't need a Uber. You don't need a cab. Fuck a bus pass. You got a moped, man. She got 1988 Mariah Carey hair. Very rare. Mom jeans on her derriere. Throwing up the west side as we tear in the air. Stop by Pipe Place. Throwing fish to a plan. Downtown. downtown by macklemore uh normally macklemore is all about rep in seattle but as people from spokane will know uh for the music video of this song uh it features him cruising the streets of downtown spokane in a moped um so respect to macklemore for showing the east side of the state some love uh why is he one of your favorite artists yeah i think well you know the other type of spokane is formerly ryan lewis yes. you know his former dj went to ferris high school yes. here at, uh, in spokane so um, you know, I love that they're, they're, there's legit Spokane ties um, for Macklemore as an artist. I think he's another one that I think he, he's just a great storyteller. Um, you know, I don't I want I don't want to show my age right now, but he doesn't. He's not a mumble mouth rapper. You actually hear you understand <laughs> that I'm showing my age right now, probably by saying that um, I tease because my kids have grown up with the same music I'm growing up for different reasons, but it's the same you <laughs> yeah. know, same music. Yeah. Um, but uh and so i just you know for me like i thought downtown itself was great it was catchy but he's also like there's there's a sense of you know self-deprecation mm. um there's a sense of humility in his music and his songs Good um, sense there's of a humor. sense of sil- yeah a sense of silliness that i think is but he also really tackles some some really heavy stuff and he his life has been some really heavy stuff as well um so i just think there's a lot of reasons as a matter of fact when he did their um they call it the was it the campground tour a yeah, couple summers ago, yeah, three summers yeah. ago. I so that. we happened to get tickets. They was in the Bing Theater here in Spokane, a seven hundred seat theater, and he killed it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was like hands down the best uh, concert I've ever been to. He just rocked it. I mean, it was loud and packed and just awesome energy, and he brought it. And Ryan Lewis was still there at the time, um, so that was a great tie back to you know his hometown too. So. Um, 
I'm all about their bogey boys, uh, golf line too. We got to get some, oh, yeah, some bogey boys that. golf gear. Um, and we've actually tried with Macklemore and this is probably as it, um, you know, pertains to Spokane, but tried a couple of times with, to get him to come to a hoop fest. That seems like a you really know, to, natural to, fit. You would think, right. Um, and just do a pop-up man, dude, get on top of it. Don't even announce it. Just pop up yeah. on top of a building in downtown Spokane and go citywide with our sound, with our musical sound system anyway. And then, you know, so I, so I guess it's a little bit there, like thinking as it pertains to hoop fest and music and artists, like he'd be one that I just think would be um, another great, interesting, really interesting person to go and sit and have a cup of coffee with and just kind of, you know, hear his stories and ask him questions and, and learn about his, you know, his journey. He just seems like a really solid dude. Yeah, no question. And you mentioned sort of his, his humbleness and that segues well to another question we had, which is that. You know, we read that when you moved back to Spokane, got in the financial services for a little bit, you said that it was, you know, a great job for a 30-year-old college grad, which is what I am, <laughs> which is a pretty humble way to sum up your life up to that point. But it also shows an attitude of appreciation. And did that sort of attitude help you have maybe an easier transition into retirement from basketball? Or was it a struggle? Or how'd all that go for you? Yeah. So I think, I think for me that the moment I said in the past where like, when I realized that basketball wasn't everything for me and that kind of, that fire kind of, um, mellowed, uh, I think that the, all those things lead to all these other things, right? I mean, we're all, the, um, we're all a total of some, some of the parts, we're all a total of our journey, but, right. um, but I think, you know, with that one, everyone was really kind of, or people were critical is why would I get out of basketball? Like why get out of basketball and go into financial services? So that was kind of a defining moment for me uh, because my other job opportunity was actually with Adidas basketball in North Portland. Oh, wow. So my, those are my two jobs. Like, do I want to stay in North Portland with Adidas um, or move to Spokane? And neither my wife nor I are from Spokane. So like, do we want to pick up and, and leave Portland, which I, again, I'm really, I'm a proud Portlander. Um, and so, but what made sense to me at the time was I just wanted to do, like, I wanted to stretch, like I wanted to kind of stretch yeah. my wings. I wanted to learn something new. I wanted to not just rest on the, my laurels as, as a basketball player, even though all those years of blood, sweat and tears are valuable. You know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of years of, of learning and growing and, and playing this game to just walk away from. And I had a great boss and mentor, his name's Dave Martin, um, at this financial services firm. But I remember one of the first things he taught me was this idea of open-ended questions, which I'd never heard of anything like that before. But it's what you two ask, you know, every podcast, you ask <laughs> open-ended questions. You hope that people like me just, oh yeah, I'll talk about myself for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And we talk about ourselves, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. but for him, he, he used to tell me like, we would go into meetings and he's like, you cannot talk about basketball. Like you just can't talk. And we'd be literally, I'd be sitting across from our, one of our, uh, uh, you know, clients, customers, and friends, we'd be doing the quarterly report. Like, this is where your money was. This is where you started. This is what the market's doing. And this is of course during the great recession too. So those were awesome meetings. <laughs> um, and he, and the, and this guy who has, you know, more money than God would sit there and he'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then we'd get to the end of the speed and then he'd look at me and be like, tell me about coach few. <laughs> and it was like, all he wanted to do was talk about basketball, yeah. but like, but, but Dave was great about, you know, coaching me in a way that didn't allow me to just rely on, you know, rest on my laurels, you mm -hmm. know, and not rely on what I had done as a form of what I'm doing now. 
And I thought that that was really, really powerful and insightful. So at the end of the day, I was, I was grateful that I did get out of basketball because there's a, there's a big world out there, you know, mm-hmm. and, and those lessons I learned in basketball are going to stick with me forever. I'm going to apply them to whatever I'm doing. Um, uh, and then fortunately, you know, I, my life has come back around to where I'm surrounded by the game again. <laughs> Can't get yeah. away from the dang thing. Yeah, that was actually the next question was, um, you know, I had this great experience spreading your wings. And then in 2014, uh, you signed on to be executive director of Hoop Fest, which you're still doing. Yep. So what what made you make that decision to come back to basketball, albeit in a different capacity? Yeah, so I think that that one was, um, for me, was a, definitely a bit of a journey, a journey I'm still on. So when I was in financial services, a lot of our clients and customers were owners, business owners. And so they're very entrepreneurial. They had won, they'd lost, they'd won again. Um, you know, they, they had amassed some form of wealth. Um, and then we came in and helped them kind of manage this well so they could go out and enjoy their lives and not worry about their, you know, their investments. And so during, I was there a little over five years and it was through the great recession. Um, So 2007, 2008. And so for me, it was about, you know, gosh, I want to be an owner. Like I was surrounded by owners. So what a great education, like from softwares to, you know, to, you know, manufacturing to, uh, you know, authors to, I mean, a lot of different people that had become really successful. So a lot of different ways of doing it. So it was a great education um, for my first job. But I wanted to be an owner. And at this particular job, that wasn't necessarily an opportunity. So I actually moved from that to insurance, of all things, um, in Spokane, because I was going to have a chance to um, build a book of business, but also kind of let one of the older partners retire and kind of take over ownership and some of his business. So there was my kind of my chance at ownership. And so when I got there, I was there and I got there for the implementation of Obamacare. So uh, keep that in mind. So I go through the great timing, recession, yeah. <laughs> great recession. I go through Obamacare and now I'm in mass gatherings during the pandemic. So I'm like a huge <laughs> red flag on, <laughs> you know, if, if you see Matt coming, don't hire Matt because it's like a huge, like not, not only are you going to see like something go wrong, but it's going to be like once in a lifetime, yeah. something go wrong. And so at that point, I was like, okay, I want to own it. So then I went to this, this new business and the culture was completely different. And so I was there for a little over a year and I was like, gosh, maybe, maybe ownership's not it. Maybe leadership is what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, I want the chance to be able to create my own team, create my own culture, learn all the, the good and the bad, the challenges and the, the successes, all the different things around leadership. And ironically, at that time, Hoopfest was having transition. So um, ultimately, that's kind of there was a board member who called me and said, hey, would you be interested in this? And I didn't understand. Like, I didn't understand the moving parts behind the event. I didn't understand the organization as, as a whole. Like I did not understand what Hoop Fest was other than this awesome basketball weekend. And so in financial services, like it was pretty sophisticated, like meaning we, our investments were not simple. Um, and then the people we dealt with were very successful you know, people. I mean, there was a, there was a right. level of, of sophistication that was a great education for me. And then insurance is, I mean, they just make it overly sophisticated so that <laughs> people like, so that you have to hire someone like me to explain it to you. Cause it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, half the stuff doesn't even make sense. So I kind of gone through this progression of like basically learning new languages, you know, I kind of the language of right. money and financial services, the language of operational and insurance and, and that, and then I got to come back to basketball. So I got to come back to like my native tongue. And like, all of mm-hmm. a sudden I went from being, you know, the dumbest dude in the room to 
at least be an incredible voice. Like I can carry on a conversation about basketball um, in most circles, right? I'm never the smartest, but I'm no longer the, you know, the dumbest person in the room either, which a lot of times in, in financial services and, and insurance, it was, you know, like I said, it was sufficiently sophisticated. So, um, so that was an interesting, uh, just an interesting, um, transition back into the sport. But one of the things I remember great, like I got a text message from Dan Munson when I first talked, took the job and he's like, Hey, you know, you're whatever I was 37 years old, 30, yeah, 37, I think. Um, he's like, you're 37 years old and you're still getting paid yeah. to play basketball. You're still getting paid by the sport of basketball. Like that's pretty cool. You know? Yeah. And so, you know, the same thing, like everything else, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, don't want to rest on my laurels, want to push it forward, want to, you know, create and be innovative. Um, and this is a great, you know, kind of opportunity to do those things because um, you have this great, community brand and hoop fest. Um, and so when I started up, I mean, it was already the largest in the world. So that wasn't like, I did, I didn't do that. I have no ego tied to that, but there are kind of two ways to approach that role. And, and I considered both of them, but the first one was like, just don't mess it up. You know, that would have been one way I could just like, just don't mess it up. It's already literally every niche business is like, Hey, how do we become the best in the world of building widgets? Well, mm-hmm. hoop fest was already the best in the world yeah. of its kind. So that one was, you know, could have been a little bit daunting, could have been a little bit intimidating, but what I chose to do, which was different is like, man, these people are giving me the keys of the Ferrari. Let's go see what this thing can do. Like, let's let it, you know, let's get it out, let it breathe a little bit. So that was kind of my approach. Um, and has been my approach throughout is just like, how do we continue to be fun, create innovative, um, impact, you know, impactful, which it are, it is, um, and great storytelling around it and create more opportunities. So um, seven years later, that's what we're trying to do. Okay. So that brings us to, I want to give you a chance to talk about maybe hoop fest this year and what you envision for it, you know, um, with it, with it restarting, if you have time for me to, as you said, your basketball expertise, I do have one more burning question as someone who (laughs) now is involved in AAU with Spokane hoop fest, um, played in Europe, as soccer players, this is a constant thing, is what is Europe doing differently to develop players than the U.S.? And so I was just curious, as someone who's been in Europe, coached AAU, play AAU, um, whether it's financial, whether it's skill development, how would you compare, obviously you didn't coach in Europe, but do you have any insight into what what's going on um, between these two countries or places? Yeah, it's just that their their club system is it's the academy system and club system. So we, instead of going to you know high school or whatever or even middle school, you're kind of put into these systems of sports, these sports academies, and so that's what Europe does versus what we do. Um, and you know we do it a little bit now with the prep school thing, and and there's some there is some opportunities that, that kids are taking advantage of, but not not like they do it in Europe. Like it is the your system. You, and so I think not only do they do that from a young age so that you're getting that structure, but the beauty of it is, is you're with older athletes. So like, that's why, you know, all these European players come over to the NBA and a lot of them are very successful because they've been playing with, I mean, we say it about Doncic's like he, we, he's been playing with grown men since he was 14 years old. Right. So like, why would he get here at 18 years old or 19 year old and be nervous about playing in the NBA? Like he's been playing and like those games count. So the, how I kind of compare European basketball to American basketball is essentially you are playing like European professional basketball is like March madness. Like every game counts and it's intense, but you're playing with grown men who know how to play. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like these are people that they may not be the NBA level athlete, but these dudes know how to play basketball and you're playing at this level of intensity where the NBA doesn't play at this level of intensity minus the playoffs or minus, mm. you know, moments of that level where you're, you're battle tested and you're getting darts thrown at you. So you're right. getting, you're getting, you know, it's a different level of intensity. And so by the time, you know, a 14 year old being exposed to that, being around adults, learning how to, to take care of your body, learning how to, to be a professional on and off the court, you know, learning about family and things of those values um, because you're just around people who have families. And then you play in these, these pressure cookers of these environments for basketball. I mean, by the time they get to the NBA, I mean, Luca says it himself, it's a lot easier to score here than it is in Europe. Hmm. Uh, and I would agree with that. And so, um, so I think that those are some of the main differences is that those academy systems are tied to a professional club and so you have the you have the A team, the professionals that also get to train and mentor the next generations down. Where when you go to college, your mentor is 21 years old, right? You know, and you're 18. Like that's not a that's not a like big lifetime difference. Now, Gonzaga, for example, has had great success because if you're you know 22 year olds, Corey Kispert, you probably have a pretty good example and mentor mm-hmm. in your locker room to kind of, and they've always had that kind of you know upperclassman that that provides that leadership and that structure. Um, whereas in Europe, you're doing it around grown men with families and, and different things. And so I think that that also, um, you know, is a, is a better prep ground, you know, preparation ground um, for future success that, you know, we just have no, no similar systems here in the States. And just one quick follow up. Is that like, uh, do you think there's systems like in, if you were uh, had all the levers and could flip a switch and make adjustments to AAU. Are there systems from Europe you would want to integrate? Or do you think, although maybe it makes these one out of a thousand super athletes, it's also kind of a tough life for a 14 year old to be playing professionally? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, we'd have to ask, you know, I think we'd have to ask some of those European players we don't see, cause we only see the one in a million. Exactly. My yeah. biggest knock on sports right now is that we don't let kids play them long enough. I mean, it's, it's literally the, another pandemic, if you will, and it's probably poor use of the word, but, um, of like kids retiring at 12 years old, Yeah, you know, they start so young, they, they, you know, start really young, everything's fun to fun. No one keeps score. So then as they get a little older, they start to keep score. Parents freak out because now little Timmy lost, (laughs) you know? And so like, they don't know how to act, but, but you're playing sports. Like we keep scoring sports. So right. there's like, oh, we don't want anything. We don't want anything that's that competitive because that's going to someone's feelings is going to get hurt. And so we're, we're, we're stripping down all these valuable lessons because parents are too involved. Like, and I'm yeah. guilty of it too. Like we are too involved. But the challenge is, is that if you're not LeBron James, you never even try. Right. So that's what I would, if I had the levers and I had the ability, I would create more opportunities for people just to play. Like literally open gyms. Like if I could yeah. build a, a multi-court facility, it would be so many hours a day, not $5 drop in. Like you got to pay for this. It's like, no, like seventh graders are running from 6 PM to 7 PM. And if you lose, you may not get on the floor. Yeah. North Portland. Like, but style. if you win, yeah, if you win, you're going to, you're running. Like, and so I think, I think that we got to create opportunities of that, of like, we're not overly, uh, you know, skill based. You're not overly. And then I love the idea of like having multiple courts where it's like, okay, we got high school on this court. Maybe we got adult on this court. And then you have the sixth graders and you're all playing in the same gym. 
So now when you're, when you've lost the game, you're watching the high school kids. Cause they're cool, right? They're, they're yeah. older than you. They're the next generation up, but then you're seeing adults play too. the good, the bad and the ugly, you know, yeah. the, the, the trash talking to the, yeah. you know, potential, the arguing and the fighting to like, no, like, this is why we do it. Like, I, I think that those opportunities just create organic lessons versus everything being so programmed and structured is if I had the levers, that's how I would approach it. Yeah. We talk about that all the time on this show. Again, coming from a soccer perspective that however far behind basketball is on having maybe being overly structured soccer is like five times worse right now in this country. Um, Cause at least the idea of pickup basketball is, is somewhat ingrained. And I think yep. that's where you get a lot of superstars is, people being able to play in unstructured environments, try things, test their skills, not get yelled at if they have a turnover, but they're still in a competitive environment where if they play too bad, someone's going to, you know, make fun of them at the open court. And I think that's okay. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, yep. it's that balance. The game teaches all the lessons. Yes. We don't, the game's yes. going to teach the lessons. And I think, I think soccer has been, cause we had young kids that play soccer too. I think the thing that sock made it hard for soccer was my whole that my whole fun to fun thing is a problem I have with the soccer because you it's soccer is really easy to play, really really hard to be good at. Right. Like it's it's but you can we can the three of us could go run around in the field right now and maybe we score maybe we don't maybe I touch a ball maybe I don't but we're running around it's fun like you know the little kids that do the amoeba thing <laughs> like basketball <laughs> football baseball like those games are really hard to play. Like you can't just go play basketball. Like we can't just go to a field and just roll a ball out to kids and say, okay, you're going to go play basketball. Like basketball's hard. You, you just getting the ball up to 10 feet is hard, mm-hmm. but we start soccer when we're like four months old because mm-hmm. we got to get kids in sports. So we start soccer really young, but then in America, like soccer is not necessarily everyone's primary sports. We're like, Oh, if we started soccer at, one year old, we better start baseball now at 18 months. Like we got to get mm-hmm. the dad wants to get baseball going. Cause we're a baseball family and it's too young. Yeah. It's too young. Like it is too hard to teach. It's too young. Kids just need to be kids up until they can then know what winning and losing is like, you know, be able to sit in left field without picking daisies, you know, be able to get the ball up to 10 feet. I just think we start too young and then we age out before you really start to learn the lessons for sports. You, you retire at 12 instead of 15. You know, you, you, you don't foster that uh, lifelong love for the sport that you, you know, you're playing because it gets hard. And then kids are like, man, I'm, I'm going to go play video games, man. This stuff's too hard. I'm sweating. Like I got to run around, like I'm out. I don't want to do this stuff anymore. And then, but then they just never get to play. I think sports too, that whole pyramid where, you know, there's only 10 spots or 12 spots on a varsity high school basketball team. Well, there's a lot more than 12 people that want to be playing basketball. So how do you create those other opportunities so that you don't have to just be all or nothing? Like I'm either a varsity level player or I don't play basketball. Like that's, that's not a good system either. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, We want to bring in your last song, uh, which is the greatest show from the greatest showman soundtrack. I felt like this is a full circle with your musical um, theater Broadway song from (laughs) childhood, but then B obviously, hoop fest i it's that doesn't feel like a stretch to say that that's you know a big show you could even say you're sort yeah. of the the ringmaster whatever it's called of that that event so feel free to tie hoop fest into this or not and yeah just talk about that song yeah so i think um I, I i do think it was full circle so i did say that but that is an album that's another one that i listened to album start to finish 
And when I have to, let's say, for example, last year when I had to write the letter that we were canceling HoopFest, the letter that we had to, we're going to postpone HoopFest, the letter that we were going to cancel HoopFest, like I usually find a quiet place and I'll play that album and I'll just write, like I'll type. That's what I type to is the, uh, the Greatest Showman. Um, and so it's, I don't know why I think it's, 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 to me, it's both inspiring because it is, I mean, it really does talk about the show, you know, and then I do I think there's a great correlation between, you know, hoop fest and, and just entertainment in general, the show. Um, and so that album is just really resonating. And it's one that, you know, we can listen to with kids and family, you know? So I, I think, I think it's good to be, um, uh, authentic. Like I think the, you know, my kids need to know that the music I like to listen to, but they also got to know that we have range. You don't have to do it just one way because you, it's hard to imagine, you know, you put in a, of a Tupac album and then the greatest showman right behind it, but that's what, that's how we roll. That's like, life. That's who we are. We got all that. So, um, so I think that that one's just a really powerful one. And then when I heard a great quote, and I'm probably not going to get it right without having to look it up, but it's about Walt Disney. And he said, one of the things that he loved about Disneyland is that it's never, it never stops. Like you're always getting better. Like when you do a movie or you do this podcast, like you're going to turn it off, you're going to cut it up, you're going to uh, produce it. And then it's gone. Like it's into the, you know, it's, it's we're never going to touch it again. Things like hoop fest they're, uh, it's organic. Like it's always, you know, you never, you're never going to get hoop fest, right? It's too many, too many people, yeah. too big, too dynamic, too awesome. Um, you're never going to just master it. So it's always, so like we're, we get to work on this thing that's organic and it's alive and it's, it's always changing. Um, and I think that that's one of the really rewarding things so when you come back to the greatest showman, uh, especially specifically that one, because it's circus based versus a, you know, even though we're watching it as a movie, you know, the, the underlying yeah. story is circus like it, it's, it's organic. It's always changing. It's always growing. We can always do something different, better, bigger, um, shoot, smaller, more subtle. Like there's always something that can happen. Um, and that's really a, a great thing. If you have the, if you have the temperament to not have to give up that type of control, be like, yep, we're just going to roll. Oh, it, it's raining today. All right. Where's, Oh, it's 115 degrees this Saturday. Stops, oh, and, yeah. and tomorrow's going to be 118 degrees. Okay. Whatever. Let's just keep, <laughs> keep going. Like we're, we're going to figure it out. So I think, um, you know, all those things. I mean, like Kevin, when Kevin Durant came in 2017, yeah. I was so excited I get a about call. that. I wasn't even there and I oh, was excited God. it happened. Oh, it was, and it was fantastic. But that happened on Wednesday of Hoop Fest week. No I get way. a call from Nike on Wednesday going 50 50 chance we get Kevin Durant here this weekend. So Thursday was 75 25, and Friday was 99% chance, and we're doing the run of show, but he's only going to be on the ground for two hours. So what do we do? And it's Sunday afternoon. So as you know, by Sunday afternoon, people are we're like, out. man, we love hoop fest, but I am tired and beat up and hot and I'm going to go home and I'll see you next year. Um, and so we had it, but we figured it out. Um, shoot. When we launched hoop town, we launched hoop town in 2019 and Saturday morning of hoop fest, Saturday, multi-care pulls us aside. We'd ask multi-care to, to, to consider this as a, a potential investment for them. Saturday morning of hoop fest, they go, we're going to give you a million bucks to bring hoop town alive Wow! on Saturday morning of hoop fest. And you're going like, so you can't plan for that type of stuff, right? Like, <laughs> the best laid plans, right? You can't, you can't, you just can't. And so those are the things that it's always, I mean, those are big examples of it being organic and alive. Um, but that's just two examples of a million each and every year, you know, every time hoop fest shows up. Yeah. It's what makes it, uh, in my opinion, one of the greatest events on earth. I I, I will put it up mm -hmm. against anything. I think um, 
just, you know, I got to go hard for my city right now. I haven't lived in Spokane <laughs> for a long time, but I tell people all the time, I don't care if you play basketball or don't play basketball, the diversity of it, um, the culture of it is, it's unlike anything else. So big props to you for that. Yeah. I appreciate that. I agree. Yeah. Thank, thanks so much for coming on the show, man, and sharing your journey with us. We can't wait for the rest of the Hoop Fest team to put on, you know, that show again this year. Hopefully, we can make our team, and we might even beat our personal best of uh, two wins. <laughs> two wins. Don't, don't, nobody hold your breath, though. Nobody hold your breath. Can't make any guarantees unless Matt yeah. joins the team. Though, We're not calling our shot, uh, to be clear. Yeah. So, um, But any, anywho, Matt, thanks again for coming on the show. This has been awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Really interesting concept, and thanks for providing the opportunity to be a little nostalgic today and go back down memory lane. Don't fight it, it's coming for you, running at you. It's only this moment, don't care what can gather. Y'all feel a dream, can't you see getting closer? Just surrender, cause you feel the feeling taking over. It's fine.